Thank you. Thank you. Welcome, my father, Mitch Packer. Welcome to EWTN Live. We're bringing you guests from around the world. Tonight, we'll look at the life and ministry of a man who, in the midst of many physical challenges and much suffering, served God and his church and was committed to his hometown of Chicago, Illinois. Before we get to that, we want to talk briefly with EWTN's Ryan Penny about how EWTN is reaching out to people through digital media. Ryan, what you got for us here? Father, I want to talk about three new important features of EWTN's online content tonight. Okay. So the first one is the latest programs to our on-demand platform. Okay. A really helpful resource on EWTN.com. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, talking about EWTN's YouTube channel and something that everybody is going to want to check out there. So first, the latest on-demand is uh, the Knights of Columbus produced this magnificent documentary film called Mother Teresa, No Greater Love, mm -hmm. and it was filmed on five continents, and it, it mm -hmm. features unprecedented access to archives revealing uh, Mother Teresa's life and gives uh, special access to the Mothers of Charity. And it uh, shows not just Mother Teresa's legacy, but how that uh, legacy is continuing on sure. through the missionaries of charity today. Sure. And then we also have uh, uh, a new version of the St. Catherine of, of the St. Catherine of Siena episode of Doctors of the Church, okay. which features epic dramatizations mm -hmm. of St. Catherine's life. It's beautifully done. And then we also have a new series with Father Wade Menezes called Work Out Your Salvation. Uh, 10 videos, half hour each long, where Father Wade is teaching us how to um, grow in a life of grace and virtue, and in the words of St. Paul, to work out our salvation. Also new to On Demand is called The Springs of Love, Catholic Foster and Adoption Stories, where you'll see three powerful testimonies featuring former foster youth and uh, foster and adoptive families that were beautifully produced by Kimberly Henkel, who is actually in our live studio audience tonight. Definitely gotta check it out, it's very well done. Good. So that's what's latest to On Demand. Now I also wanna make sure that everyone knows um, how to check the uh, latest airtimes for your favorite EWTN programs by simply going to EWTN.com slash TV slash shows. And on those show pages, you'll be able to find all the information you want about your favorite shows, including how to watch it on air, on demand, via podcast, um, or how to buy the DVD at EW10 Religious Catalog. So all that information is on those show pages. And then lastly, I want to make sure everyone, I want to invite our EWTN family to explore EWTN's YouTube channel, which now has over 800,000 subscribers and over 40,000 videos, uh, some of the most popular of which have been our YouTube shorts. Good. 60 second or less videos uh, featuring some of the best moments of Mother Angelica and uh, Fulton Sheen and many other powerful Catholic voices. And one of our most recent uh, YouTube shorts that has been incredibly popular is uh, about the Shroud of Turin. It's called What What You Missed About the Shroud Moved to Scientists. It's gotten over, uh, it's gotten now 800,000 views on YouTube in just the past two and a half weeks, Good. talking about something that a scientist who was a part of the Shroud of Turin research uh, project back in 1978 
noticed at a very important detail about the shroud that most of us have missed, but that very deeply moved him and that we all need to take notice of because we will probably be very moved and inspired okay. as well. So that's the latest. Sounds good. Thanks for keeping up that good work in that area. And we will be back to do some work with another area with tonight's guest. So please stay with us. Good job. Welcome back. Our guest tonight is an author and the editor of our Sunday visitors, simplycatholic.com. His newest book shines the spotlight on a native Chicagoan who is the devoted pastor and heroic disciple of Christ. The book is called Glorifying Christ, the Life of Cardinal Francis E. George, OMI. Here to share more about that particular prince of the church who died eight years ago this past Monday, April 17th, please welcome Michael Heinlein. Michael, welcome. Thank, Thank you so to much have for you. having me. Pleasure Thank to be here. Thank you for being here. And this, this is uh, an interesting book. Um, you uh, are not from Chicago, right? Did you know Cardinal George? I actually met him several times mm -hmm. um, when I was a student at the Catholic University of America, and okay. he was uh, vice president president of the U.S. Bishops Conference at the time and on the right. university's board of trustees. So okay. I would see him in and out rather frequently, mm -hmm. and um, he he got to he had a very miraculous memory. I don't know how he kept everything in his head, but he remembered who I was by the place I grew up. And uh, he had an aunt and uncle who had lived there, so he always would say Crown Point whenever he saw me and would yeah. strike up a conversation. He was very approachable that way. Nice. Yeah, he, he was. He really was very approachable. Um, if you didn't know him that well, uh, why did you choose to do this book? What interested you in him? Well, I think like most Catholics in the United States, um, I regarded him as one of the most important bishops in the history of our country. Mm -hmm. And when he died eight years ago, like so many people, I was wondering how can we keep his memory, how can we keep his legacy and mm -hmm. witness alive? Mm -hmm. And um, one thing led to another and I started talking to a lot of people who were his contemporaries, those who worked closely with him and so on. And uh, many people were encouraging a biography to be written. And I thought, oh yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> but uh, little did I know that one way or another, the Lord was calling me to take that on. And so uh, mm -hmm. I think that it was an important story, though, and I, I, I brought it to prayer, and the Lord seemed to be directing me to uh, tell that story, and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really grateful to have been able to do that. And you were able to get into a, a lot of sources. That's one of the great things about writing a biography. You have to get into the various sources. His family, they were very helpful to you. 
Oh, yes, absolutely. His sister Margaret was uh, right on board from the very beginning of the project. Wonderful. Yeah. And then also his community, the Oblates of Mary Immaculate, the OMIs, uh, they were very helpful. And then, you, of course, he had help from the dioceses and archdioceses where he served as bishop. Uh, and that included uh, in Washington yeah, State. Yeah, Yakima, Washington. He was in Yakima. Central State. And then over in... Um, Portland. Uh, Portland, Oregon. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, ended up in Chicago, Chicago, his hometown. That's right. Yeah, I was really very blessed to have so much support from those who loved him, who knew him way back, high school classmates with the mm -hmm. Oblates of Mary Immaculate. Yeah. Um, many priests in that community who really uh, gave me a lot of material to use and fill mm -hmm. up the first chapters yeah, exactly. of the book. And then exactly. the Oblates were very gracious. They're very proud of him. And yeah, uh, they well opened up their archives to me uh, in, in Washington, D.C., and in Rome, where the Cardinal had lived for 12 years. Mm -hmm. Now, so you've got good sources here. You've gone to, to this material. What is it that you, and, and also you have lots of endorsements by a number of other Cardinals, Archbishops, and Bishops, uh, because he was highly regarded uh, by them as well. What do you see as the significance of Cardinal George? Well, Cardinal George certainly had a lasting legacy in that he was a very committed churchman. He was dedicated to teaching the faith. He was a very nuanced and brilliant man in his yes. thought. And, um, you know, he, he was able to articulate the faith in such a way that he could bring people together. Mm -hmm. And so he was really concerned about bringing about unity in the church. Mm -hmm. And so I think that his voice is still very relevant today to that end. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but not just the fact that he was an amazing bishop, that he was a, a skilled teacher and, and effective at governance, but also that he was a very committed disciple. And I see in his own faith life a story of suffering, of sacrifice, of continually offering his life for the good of others. Mm -hmm. And I think that he has something to teach us, all of us who want to endeavor on that road to discipleship. One of the elements that you bring out very strongly is that of suffering. Life was not easy for him. Tell us a little bit about that and some of the effect that that had. Well, it began when he was 13 years old mm -hmm. and he was afflicted with polio. He spent several months in the hospital um, he had been planning to become a priest in his home archdiocese of Chicago. He had his eyes set on that mm -hmm. from the day he made his first communion. And um, when the polio came and the disability resulted, the archdiocese of Chicago said, you can come to our high school seminary, but we want you to know we won't ordain you a priest. And um, in his own mind, he said, well, to heck with you guys. And he went and joined the Oblates of Mary Immaculate. But you have to stop and think about what it was like for this teenage boy to be rejected by the church at that age, mm -hmm. but not give up. Mm -hmm. His sister Margaret shared the story with me of when he was in the hospital and shared a, a room with an older gentleman. And uh, they would talk back and forth from one bed to the other. Mm -hmm. And this man told uh, the George's mother, Julia George, that sometimes Franny, as he was called as a young boy, would fall silent. And he would look over at Franny and he'd be staring up at the crucifix. And I think from this disability 
and the suffering that came with it, the uncertainty, the rejection. I think that young Franny was making sense of it all through the cross. And that was something that prepared him for the rest of his life. That suffering, of course, from the disability continued throughout his whole life. Eventually, he had to wear a leg brace on his right mm -hmm. leg. And, um, and then uh, the last nine years of his life were spent battling bladder cancer. He had his bladder removed and had to have an artificial bladder constructed mm -hmm. and lived with the results of that. And then cancer is what ultimately took him. Mm -hmm. So his sister told me there was never a day that he wasn't in pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he came... In, into this world just as polio, just before polio was coming to an end, uh, figuring he got polio because he was born in what? 37. So he got it in 1950. And it wasn't just about three or four years later that the Salk polio vaccine was made available. Uh, I remember getting it, you know, when it first came out. but. Polio was much, much dreaded when I was a very little boy. And so um, to get that, you know, I've known others. Uh, one of my former rectors had, uh, is still alive and he had polio and has it. Um, so the, these are very serious diseases and, and problems uh, and certainly cancer. And yet it didn't dis stop his faith. That's one of the keys. And it seemed to be, as you presented, warp and woof of his faith, that this is interwoven with his faith. Yes, absolutely. Um, as I had mentioned, he found a home eventually with the Oblates of Mary Immaculate mm -hmm. and studied for preparation of the priesthood with them, made his religious profession with them. And one of the interesting things with the Oblates of Mary Immaculate is in addition to poverty, chastity, and obedience, they take a fourth vow. Mm -hmm. that of perseverance. And when I found that out, I thought, oh, of course he ended up with the oblates then because he really had to persevere and overcome so many obstacles mm -hmm. in order to really give himself to Christ and to the church as he had wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So nothing was going to stand in Francis George's way to give himself to the Lord. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very beautiful thing about his life, even from that young age, that he was able to be that perseverant. And he had to keep that perseverance going his whole life because eventually he became a provincial and vicar general for his community. He had to overcome many uh, necessary reforms that were uh, needed in the life of his community at the time after mm -hmm. the Second Vatican Council. Mm -hmm. And uh, he took on all these challenges. And then later on as bishop, of course, the challenges multiplied. And uh, he kept going, though. He never complained. People who lived with him told me. As a matter of fact, it's not that he didn't only avoid complaining. But he, he was also a, a funny man. He had a good sense of humor about things. In, in fact, one of the things, we have a little clip we'd like to show of him displaying that. This was his homily when he was installed as the Archbishop of Chicago. Let's take a look at that. Dear friends, last November 20th, sitting along the wall of the apse of this cathedral and listening to Monsignor Vilo's moving tribute to Cardinal Bernadine, taking in that masterful reprise of the Cardinal's life and ministry and faith-filled dying. 
I never imagined that I would be here today taking on his mission. But then coming occasionally as a lad to this cathedral and seeing Cardinal Stritch in this sanctuary, I never imagined that I would someday be his successor too. If surprise is a sign of God's presence, then God is with us in force today. <laughs> but surprise is relative. There are surprises and surprises. Last week, I confirmed in the cathedral in Portland. And as my custom, I talked to the young men and women to be confirmed before the ceremony. We went through it, we talked about it a little bit, and then I asked, are there any other questions? And one young man put his hand up and he says, Archbishop, who is going to be Archbishop of Portland? And I said, well, I really don't know that we should pray for him and keep that intention in your prayers. And he said, well, Archbishop, you're going to Chicago. Maybe we could arrange a trade and have Michael Jordan come here. <laughs> Now that would be a surprise. <laughs> Indeed, and that was when the Bulls were doing their repeat of the three-peat. Right. So that, you know, that's, I don't think they would have gotten, but they did get a Chicagoan. That's right. Yeah, the, the new Archbishop of uh, Portland had been one of my teachers. When I went to the high school, they wouldn't let him, in, uh, Cardinal George, in. <laughs> Next Bishop Lasney. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he taught us music. Um, th this ability to endure suffering and maintain humor and be able to persevere in the various charges you get within the church, that's some of the main lines of his personality as you lay it out here. Would that be fair? Absolutely. He was someone who didn't take himself too seriously, mm -hmm. you know, and um, he, he was very humble. He, he would talk about the fact that he was disabled rather openly. Mm -hmm. um, when he was ordained a bishop in 1990 in Yakima, Washington, and he repeated it many other times after that, he said, you know, I'm going to fall down but if I fall down, just help me up and we'll move on together. That's the kind of man he was. Mm -hmm. He wasn't someone who was uh, concerned about position and power. He was concerned about other people. And uh, I think it was the suffering and the disability that helped him have a heart for others mm -hmm. and helped him, of course, be humble. That's one of the characteristics of suffering. Either it isolates you inside yourself and fills you with resentment or anger, or you become empathetic to others' suffering. And you can go beyond your suffering and see that there's way worse suffering than what I'm going through, and what can I do to help? Those are the choices that the suffering had, and he took the virtuous choice. The other thing that I remember hearing from one of his brother bishops uh, was that at the same time he was very humble, very focused on others. The bishop said that he knew, I don't know if George always knew it, but everybody else knew that when he came into a room, 
he was almost always the smartest guy there. And that's one of the things about him. He was also intellectually brilliant, a brilliant man. Talk a little bit about that aspect of him. Yeah, I, I, some of his classmates in seminary, even some of his professors who I was able to, to, to speak with, they would comment about how they knew he was the smartest one in the room. Mm -hmm. But he didn't let people know it. Mm -hmm. He would stay back. He wouldn't push his, his intellect on people. Right. You know, he didn't right. wear it on his sleeve in such a way that it was overbearing. Yes. yes. Um, and then, of course, as a bishop, the bishops in the room always listened to him. I heard time and again from the bishops, whenever Francis George got to the microphone at a USCCB meeting, everyone stopped and listened. Because Some of they them knew. even woke up. Yeah, right. <laughs> they knew that whatever he was going to say had real merit and value and was going to be something that brought the bishops together in one way or another. We have a clip of him at the USCCB. Let's take a look at it. If the Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision that African Americans were other people's property and somehow less than persons were still settled constitutional law, Mr. Obama would not be President of the United States. Today, as was the case 150 years ago, common ground cannot be found by destroying the common good. This is the 50th year since the calling of the Second Vatican Council by blessed Pope John XXIII. The Pope looked at a divided world and hoped that the Church could act, as Lumen Gentian calls us, as the sacrament of the unity of the human race. Those who would weaken our internal unity render the Church's external mission to the world more difficult, if not impossible. Jesus promised that the world would believe in him if we are one. One in faith and doctrine, one in prayer and sacrament, one in governance and shepherding. The church and her life and teaching do not fit easily into the prior narratives that shape our public discussions. As bishops, we can only insist that those who would impose their own agenda on the church, those who believe and act self-righteously, answerable only to themselves, whether ideologically on the left or on the right, betray the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Episcopal Conference has given us in the Church's canon law so that we might have an instrument for shaping spiritual unity, for creating the bonds of affection that help us to govern in communion with each other, especially in a divided world and in a Church that knows dissent from some of her teachings and dissatisfaction with aspects of her governance. As we all know, the Church was born without Episcopal conferences, as she was born without parishes and without dioceses, although all these structures have been helpful pastorally throughout the centuries. The Church was born only with shepherds, with apostolic pastors, whose relationship to their people keeps them one with Christ, from whom comes authority to govern the Church. This is a, a good example. First of all, he was the president of the USCCB, and as, as is their custom, the year before that, he was the vice president. And he was able to give that speech to all the bishops uh, as president and call them exactly to what you said, you know, this sense of being shepherds who are there to s serve and guide the people 
to Christ, which is his focus, but also uh, he was very concerned about the unity of the church, not letting the, uh, the left or the right uh, take the church in a direction away from Christ. You know, this, that, was very, that was central to his, his old teaching. Absolutely. Um, in 1997, when he was appointed to Chicago in the press conference, uh, uh, making his appointment public, um, the press was wanting to know, are you liberal or conservative? And Cardinal George said, Catholic faith isn't liberal or conservative. The Catholic faith is true, and I will preach the faith. And I think he did a pretty good job of that. He did. He did. He did. And, you know, and, and that should be the attitude of us all, you know, that this isn't about conservative or uh, uh, liberal. It's about the truth of Jesus Christ. Conservative and liberal are political concepts about the prudence in the way you administer the state. It's nothing to do with our Catholic faith, and that's important. Yeah, absolutely. He advocated for simply Catholicism, yeah. where we can have, you know, the breadth and depth of the Catholic faith alive in the church today. Exactly. And that's what we need in order to be able to pass on the faith with integrity, with authenticity. You know, we have to be real uh, models of what the faith means in all of its splendor. And I think Cardinal George embodied what he was advocating for. Very much so. Very much so. He uh, was very concerned with a wide variety of issues and always from that Catholic sense, you know, strongly committed to the issue of life, to the issue of racial justice. Uh, that, you know, you would say, well, one of those is liberal, one of those is conservative. No, they're both Catholic. Yes, absolutely. That's the issue for him. Yes, absolutely. You know, he only wrote two pastoral letters when he was in Chicago. One was on evangelization and one was on the sin of racism. Mm -hmm. And I think that embodies exactly what you're saying, that mm -hmm. he saw the beauty and the depth of the Catholic faith for what it was, mm -hmm. and he just wanted to make that alive to his people. Yep, yep. And, you know, and Chicago is, uh, and he would have known this growing up, uh, he, as a matter of fact, he grew up uh, just maybe two miles or three miles away from where I lived. Uh, the he was in the neighboring parish, St. Pascal's, I was in St. Priscilla's. And, you know, the um, uh, city is an interesting mix. On one hand, it's fairly divided. Uh, sometimes people describe, I don't know today, but it was described as a lot of villages, you know, that were there, or small towns where you had German neighborhoods, Polish neighborhoods, Italian, black Puerto Rican, Mexican, and all these different groups. And that brought a rich mosaic of, because uh, the restaurants in those neighborhoods are great. But on the other hand, it could also bring racial tension. And that, that's, the, that's the shadow side of that rich diversity. And that's what he was trying to uh, understand. Yeah, I think absolutely he saw himself as that figure of unity among all these groups. You know, when he came to Chicago, he introduced himself to his new flock at his installation by saying, I'm Francis, your neighbor. 
as a Chicagoan, he knew exactly what that meant. Yeah. Yeah, and the yeah. people that heard him knew he knew them. He was one of yeah, them, you exactly. know. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Because, again, it's the city that focuses on neighborhoods. This is our neighborhood here. That was very strong in the city. Yes, uh, so and the he, parishes and schools were the nucleus often oh, yeah. in those neighborhoods. Oh, I, I knew Jewish people who identified, and yeah, I'm over from St. Timothy's Parish. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, just, it was the way the city was divided. Would be some of the other elements that you think would be an important message for the church today from Cardinal George? You know, he was someone who really worked behind the scenes very effectively uh, with the clergy abuse crisis. Mm -hmm. And he, um, you know, saw ways in which laity should be included in investigation. Mm -hmm. I, I tell the story of how he in led the charge of an investigation of a bishop in his province and relied upon a lay, trusted lay member of his staff in order to do that. Way ahead of the curve on mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, he was also an advocate for zero tolerance all the way to the halls of the Vatican who, you know, at the time the Vatican was a little hesitant about um, <clears throat> one, you know, zero tolerance, one strike and you're out for priests. But mm. Cardinal George went to bat for that and so that's part of his legacy too. Mm. But I think that, um, you know, when we're dealing with these sorts of issues, we can look to figures like Cardinal George and, 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 and try to put them under the microscope a little bit and say, what were they saying and doing? Another thing, for example, was before the 2002 Dallas meeting, he said, if we don't include... Which was the, so folks understand, that was a, the meeting that really was crystallized the policy that helped to really change the uh, clergy abuse yes. uh, issue. And since then, it's, it's become a, a very, very few cases. That's right. Uh, the effectiveness of the charter uh, that they produced at that time for mm -hmm. the protection of young people. But, you know, in 2018, we were wrestling with bishops aren't included in that because of Theodore McGarrick. But I found a quote from Cardinal George in 2002 before that meeting and said, we really should be including the bishops in this. Yeah. But he wasn't listened to. Yeah, well, not at the time. We have to take a little break and we're going to come back. We want to get some of your questions and your comments as well as those of our studio audience. So please stay with us. Welcome back. We are discussing a really fine book. As a matter of fact, I want to also compliment you on how nicely it's written. It's, it's very readable and engaging. So thank you for thank doing you. a good job on uh, the discussion within your book. But the book is called Glorifying Christ, The Life of Cardinal Francis E. George, OMI. It's written by our guest, Michael Heinlein. And the book is available at EWTNRC.com. EWTNRC.com, where it is item number T1947. T1947. 
All right, you ready for some questions? Sure. Let's start off with Mike in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Mike, what can we do for you? Yeah, good evening, uh, Father Mitch and Mr. Heinlein. Uh, thank you for taking the question. Uh, sure. My mother and I enjoyed your homily today, Father Mitch. Oh, thank you. And, thank you. And um, I'm calling in regards to a 1999 Commonweal article where Cardinal George was interviewed, and he said, we are at a turning point in the life of the church in this country. Liberal Catholicism is an exhausted project. And it goes, he goes on to say, it has shown itself unable to pass on the faith in its integrity and inadequate, therefore, in fostering the joyful self-surrender called for in Christian marriage and consecrated life in ordained priesthood. It no longer gives life. This was 1999, at the height of John Paul II's papacy, and soon to be followed by Pope M. XVI. Mm -hmm. Now we see a different kind of papal administration. It seems like he was very prophetic. I'm curious what you have to share on this change, and was he right here, uh, or is this going to perhaps go on in a way he didn't expect? Thank you. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, Michael? Well, I would say Cardinal George was critical of the left-right divide, as we mentioned earlier in the mm -hmm. church, and how these political labels um, certainly plagued us. And he saw them as obstacles to our mission, as uh, the clip from his talk mm -hmm. to the bishops um, brought about. He, he said that, you know, the Lord promised we're, we're going to be effective in mission if we're one, if we're united. And so I think the Cardinal saw these trends within the church. You have to remember, he was uh, a young oblate priest dealing with administrative issues in the wake of the Second Vatican Council. And he saw what liberal Catholicism had as its project. And that's why he said it's exhausted. Why? Because we could see it was no longer giving life. We could see that it really was uh, a fruitless enterprise, mm -hmm. that the faith isn't regenerating itself when that is the approach to Catholicism. Yeah, I, I remember him also describing it as parasitic. That in, but what he meant by that was not just some insult. He said, you know, a parasite draws its life from another organism. It can't live on its own. And, and I can remember uh, there was a, a, a very, very far left a Catholic feminist living in uh, Evanston. Back, uh, she was a professor up that way. And she was asked, well, you don't agree with the Catholic Church on so many issues. Why do you stay? And she said, well, that's where the Xerox machine is. <laughs> now, what she meant by that was, if I weren't in the church, I would just be among my own, talking to my own. But because I'm in the church, I can draw life and I stand out because I disagree with the church. And that's what he meant by being a parasite. She had to live off of the church by being against its doctrine. And he, Cardinal George pointed that kind of criticism out, that you, you are not there to 
suck life from the church the way some parasitic vine draws life off of a living tree. But you have to be someone who accepts the truth of Christ and you give life to others, not take it from others. That's right. He was always talking about how the church is a mother. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, the mother has to be generative and life-giving, nurturing. And that's how he saw the role of Catholics in the world today. Mm -hmm. uh, how else could we accomplish our mission if we weren't doing that? If we were sucking life from the church and redirecting it for our own purposes, then we would be, you know, contrary to what Christ had commanded us to do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think, you know, we... we what we see still in the tension that exists is that there are a number of folks still from the 60s and 70s who are around to answer our, uh, the question, you know, and there's, they still have a hope. Well, the, the kind of openness that we were looking for in the 60s and 70s liberalism, can't that still give some life? This is a, a last-ditch effort at that. I, I don't think it's working myself, but, you know, the, the, there'll be other historians coming later to see whether or not it uh, was successful. Um, I'll be dead by then. We have another caller. Mike is calling from Sweet Home Chicago. Mike? Hello, Father. Hi, what um, part of the city are you from? I'm a Southsider here. And I All right. To, I wanted to compliment Michael on a wonderful book. I enjoyed reading it. And if he sees a spike in sales, it's because I've been telling anyone who would listen how wonderful this book is. Uh, and they should Thank be picking you. it up. Uh, my quick question for you. It, it's easy to see the genius of, of Cardinal George. And... And, and, and I miss it now here as a member of his flock. But here's my question for you. I really enjoyed the stories in the book about him being a pastor. Are there any anecdotes you could share that were not in the book about what a wonderful guy he was pastoring to his flock? Because his genius is certainly without question, but, but things people might not realize are, are what a great pastor he was, too. If you could just talk on that, I'd appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. Well, you know, the, the media cameras were not usually around when the cardinal was really being a pastor. They were always around when there was a crisis or something like yeah. that or doing an interview. But um, the, the stories that I heard time and time again is that he was a consummate pastor. He visited all the parishes in the Archdiocese of Chicago, uh, some more than once. Um, he was often the last person to leave an event. Um, I can speak a, a story personally from my own family about that. Um, he was, the Cardinal was celebrating uh, a regular Sunday Mass at Holy Name Cathedral in Chicago um, some years before he died. And uh, my future father-in-law was there just in town uh, visiting with uh, some friends. And he happened to talk to the cardinal afterwards, and he felt as if the cardinal would have stayed and talked to him until, you know, the clock ran out and he had to go somewhere else. That was the kind of man he was. This was a stranger who he never met before, mm -hmm. and he just wanted to engage and talk with him. Mm -hmm. um, and that, those are the stories, you know, um, when he was bishop of Yakima, uh, where he was first bishop from 1990 to 1996, uh, you could really see even many years later when I visited there, the legacy of Cardinal George as a pastor, fully alive. 
because um, many people would still speak of him so warmly and remember him with such affection. Mm -hmm. He really left a mark on them. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, uh, when he left Yakima in 1996, the local newspaper, the Yakima Herald Republic, uh, referred to him with the title headline, The Good Bishop. Mm -hmm. And I think that many people in Chicago would agree with that, who mm -hmm. knew him. He was bogged down with more duties administratively, yeah. uh, nationally, internationally. But that doesn't mean that he didn't make time for his people. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know um, if it's a story that I, I, I talked about in the book. I, it was in the book, but I don't know how much I elaborated it on. But um, there was a lady uh, that he met at a parish once who asked Cardinal George if he could offer spiritual direction for her. And um, he gave her his private line. His own staff didn't even know he had done this. And someone else who told me the story had been meeting with Cardinal George and the phone rang. He said, just pause for a moment. I have to take this phone call. And those were the sorts of things that he did. He would make himself available in very quiet, unassuming ways. Mm -hmm. He would go help in uh, parish soup kitchens, unannounced. Mm -hmm. He would love to hear confessions at the cathedral. Nobody knew it was him. And that was just the man he was, trying to be available to his people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, those are key stories that, um, you know, uh, anybody in the church, uh, in the priest knows that you won't get to heaven because you're so smart and you can teach Bible studies or something up in heaven. You're there because you're a good shepherd. Absolutely. You know, that's, that counts. I have a question from our studio audience. Sir, where are you from? I'm from uh, southern Delaware, Father. Oh, great. Welcome. Good to have you here. And what, what's your question or comment? Uh, first, I'd like to say um, I didn't know a whole lot about uh, Cardinal George, but uh, after hearing this conversation today, I'm anxious to find out more with your book. Yeah, Thank you. Good. Yeah, it's, it's well worth it. Uh, in, earlier in, the, um, in your talk, you made the comment, Father, about uh, politics, uh, whether you're right or left, mm -hmm. is really political, and it really doesn't apply to the church. Mm -hmm. And my question is, and I agree with that, and my question is, um, in my opinion, there are too many people in the church that maybe don't understand that. Mm -hmm. So how do we get the message to them? Yeah, I, I th my own sense is that we need to focus on teaching Catholicism. Again, as you said about the, the cardinal, teaching basic Catholicism, what I like to call um, paint by numbers, stay inside the lines, and be happy with the Catholic picture. That would be key so that we know, for instance, what's in the scriptures, what I call the meat of our faith, what's in the catechism. That would be the potatoes of our faith. And the writings by saints would be your vegetables. This is a, a balanced spiritual diet so that you can you know, know what is Catholic and you can, even if you tend towards the left, you should be able to have a judgment on both left-wing and right-wing politics. If you, uh, based on morals, moral judgments that come from the gospel 
and from the catechism. If you are on the right, you should be able to criticize what's on the right, the, their policies, as well as on the left, on the basis of the same principles. What do we see in the gospel of Jesus Christ? What do we see in the catechism? What are the ramifications of the commandments of God? And make our critiques of how to prudently, that is, use common sense, that's prudence, to govern our nation and our families, our towns, not just what the president does, that gets in the big news. Who's on the school board? Who's running sanitation in your town? Who's in charge of the police? Those local issues, as well as the big, and apply Catholic principle. And don't give me this nonsense of, well, the separation of church and state. Nonsense. That's not in the Constitution. And it's not a Catholic principle. We have to apply all of this to the way we act. That would be my sense. Does that help? Yes, it does. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. We have another caller coming in, other than Michael. Uh, but this one is in Spokane, Washington. Michael, what can we do for you today? Uh, yes. Thank you, Father, for taking my call, and thank you, Michael, for writing this book on Cardinal, um, on Cardinal George. My question is, is the process of sainthood for Cardinal George being considered, and how would this happen? Very interesting question, Michael. Do you know anything about that? Well, um, before a sainthood cause is formally opened, of course, the church looks for if there's any popular devotion. Are mm -hmm. people praying to this person? Is he interceding in response to those prayers? Yeah, do the prayers get answered? Right. In, in ways that are detectably miraculous. Exactly. Um, I can say on two fronts, I've talked to a lot of people who say they pray to the Cardinal every day. Some of those people believe that there have been favors granted to them. Mm -hmm. um, so there is that. But in relationship to that, too, uh, when you look at the Cardinal's grave, he chose to be buried not with the other archbishops of Chicago. He chose to be buried in a family plot in one of the Catholic cemeteries in the archdiocese. Mm -hmm. And his grave is regularly visited. And people are turning to him, it seems for that intercessory prayer. And you can see that by things that are left there, flowers, candles, statues, pictures of people who maybe are sick, handwritten notes asking the Cardinal for help with this or that. And so, you know, um, while there's no formal canonization cause open yet, I certainly, having looked into his life very closely all these years, believe that it's something that the church should consider at some point because there's obviously movement there. The spirit's at work somehow. Mm -hmm. And people are, are turning to him as a, as a real model. See, that's, uh, I think that's very important because his, his grave is not in some or close to some big public institution. It's not by the cathedral. Uh, the other, some of the other archbishops are buried out at the seminary in uh, Mundelein. Yeah, there are two there. Yeah, yeah. two of them there. I, I attended the funeral of one of them. Uh, back when I was seminarian in the archdiocese. And, you know, that the, the, he's not there. It's just 
it's it's kind of it's far off yeah, yeah. it's about 15 minutes up the road from o'hare airport mm -hmm. it's kind of just in suburbia and what, what suburb is it in again he's in des plaines des plaines um, yeah which cemetery uh all saints cemetery all there, saints. there are two parts of the cemetery divided by a main thoroughfare and he's in the older part mm -hmm. and um also there's a, a cloistered Carmelite monastery on the edge of the cemetery. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of the nuns there have remarked to me how they receive visitors at the turn bringing prayer intentions who are there because they drove up to visit the Cardinal's grave. Mm -hmm. uh, so they're very much aware of, of the movement there of people that are coming to visit mm -hmm. him. Mm -hmm. That's always a good thing to have Carmelite sisters near your grave. <laughs> Because uh, I know that those wonderful nuns will be praying for all those souls. Oh, there. he loved them. He loved the Carmelites yeah. and the poor Clares in his archdiocese who yes. he brought back to Chicago. Yeah. He was very supportive and uh, very much uh, in tune with the cloistered life and mm -hmm. did anything that he could to support them and visited them regularly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and in fact, he helped uh, found the first order of men ever founded in Chicago, and that That's would right. be the uh, priest over at St. John Cantius. That's right, the canons regular exactly. of St. John Cantius. Yes, he was involved in Yeah, in he that. was their founding bishop um, mm -hmm. and was very instrumental in helping them draft their constitutions because mm -hmm. he had done that as an oblate, so he took a keen interest, and I know they told me in their archives they have some of his handwritten notes on the drafts of their constitutions. Mm -hmm. He was very interested in new movements in the life of the church because he knew that's where life would come from, and he knew that's what would bring a sense of reform to the church. See, that's, to go back to one of the, the questions from Mike in uh, Pennsylvania. You know, he was a man who was discerning, mm. discerning, you know, which of the new developments in the church are bringing growth, are bringing us closer to Jesus Christ? Which of these new movements indicate the Holy Spirit is active here and which ones are parasitic taking life and sucking the life out of areas of the church. And you can see, you know, is this a movement that brings new vocations? Like you see with the canons of St. John Cantius, which is the church where my father was baptized. Uh, and on the other hand, you also see those that empty out the convents, empty the, the seminaries, empty the parishes out. You know, what, what's going on with these is, is important. He was carefully discerning on the principles of Christ and his gospel. Absolutely. He had real vision. He could see beyond what most of us see. Mm -hmm. He could see very deeply, often many times 10 steps down the road and other people were like, wait right. a minute, where are you going with this? But, right. you know, he said many times one of the main jobs of the bishop, if not the main job, is to look for the saints and encourage them. Yes. And that's exactly what we need from our shepherds. We need to be encouraged when we're on the right path. And he did a really good job of that. Yes, yes, good. Well, that's good. Well, this is, um, uh, thank you, because this is a wonderful uh, topic and wonderful person. He's, he's been a guest in the same chair as you. <laughs> what an uh, honor. Yeah, he, uh, I enjoyed having him as a guest on this show in past years. 
And, uh, and it was also a lot of fun to, to sit around with afterwards and talk about various things in the church uh, and in the country. So he, he was just, just a delight to, to get to know and meet. He was a fully alive human being, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it's, it's fun to have this conversation. I'm on my way tomorrow morning to Chicago to give a retreat at the Jesuit Retreat House. So it'll be very much on my mind to, to have these, these good memories of Cardinal George as I return back to Chicago. That would be a good thing. And, you know, the book that we are discussing, again, is called Glorifying Christ. The Life of Cardinal Francis E. George, OMI, written by our guest tonight, Michael R. Heinlein. And this book is available at EWTNRC.com, where it's item number T1947. And something I like about a biography book such as this that you've done is it's not only about this individual, but through this individual, you get open up to events of history. So thank you for doing that. And you know, we need to understand the history of this past you know, 70, 80 years in the church that he very much was part of. So this, this is a good way to understand the past through such individuals. And I recommend strongly reading biographies. Thank you for being with us tonight. Thank you for this book. Thank you. And may the Lord bless you and all of our audience, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And we can bring you this program and all the masses, the rosaries, and all the other programs that we have here only because the network is brought to you by you. That's how our Lord inspired Mother Angelica to present this network. So, as always, and as she did, we ask you to keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill. And if you do, we'll be able to pay our bills too. God bless you, and thank you.